Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. Church, let's go ahead and grab our, our uh, excuse me, our Bibles. So we're going to turn, turn to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to begin in verse 46 this morning. We're going to read through the end of chapter 10. So when you find that, let's go ahead and stand up together as God's word is holy. It is infallible. It is the inerrant word of God, the authority over our lives. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through the rest of the chapter. Listen now to God's word. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take hearts, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Get up, they told him in verse 49. That's a phrase we use quite often, get up. We say it to our teenagers when they're sleeping in a little bit too long in the summertime and they're missing half the day and it's beautiful outside. We come into the room and we say, get up. That's a phrase that we scream at the television set sometimes if we're watching football, if we have any football again, when the ball carrier is running down and there's plenty of green grass in front of him and he trips and stumbles, but no defender has yet touched him. We yell at the screen, get up. And so we say if we're watching a boxing prize fight and the fighter, the pugilist that we're cheering for gets knocked down, we scream at the the television set, get up. Get up is what we say to our children encouragingly if they're learning how to ride their bikes. They're six years old perhaps, learning how to ride their bike without their training wheels and they fall down and scrape their knee and we say to our child as affirmingly as we can, get up. Get up is what the physical therapist says to her client who's been injured, encouragingly, lovingly, challenging, get up. And sometimes that's the hardest thing in the world to do is just to simply get up and push ourselves off the ground, 
the lethargy of life or the gravity of the weight of our circumstances. Sometimes even our physical condition makes it difficult for us to get up. Sometimes it's not a physical problem at all. Sometimes it's just emotional. It's hard to get up. It's hard to get moving. Uh, the circumstances in our lives can be heavy and sometimes dreary. And the hardest thing in the world is to simply get yourself up and get going. Sometimes it's not emotional or physical. It's just a spiritual issue. And we just need to hear those words challenging us to get up and get going again. It's a difficult thing to do at times. And in this passage today, Jesus is going to heal a man named Bartimaeus, who is an interesting subject for our study together because, as we've mentioned the last couple of weeks, Jesus is now on the road to Calvary. There is a point of destination for Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. He's going to enter the city soon, but now he's coming to the city of Jericho, which is about 10 miles short of Jerusalem. So he's on his way, Jesus and the disciples traveling to Jerusalem, and on the way they encounter this man, Bartimaeus. He's got a name, by the way. Did you notice that? He's a real person. Sometimes in the scriptures we see Jesus healing the crowds or heals this person or that person. A lot of times they don't even get names in the story, but this guy, he's named, and that's a good reminder to us that he's a real person. He had a family. His dad's name was Timaeus, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. He's not just a statistic. He's not a polling group. He's not a theoretical person just out there. It's a real person, Bartimaeus. And even as the city of Jericho is most well known for the miracle in the book of Joshua, remember when God's people come into the city of Jericho, they march around the, the tower multiple times. Seven times they march around. And remember the, city, the story, the city walls fall, fall down. And yet this time it's not going to be something falling down, but rather Bartimaeus getting up is the miracle of the story. And so with the text today, what I'd simply like to do is just kind of walk through it a couple of verses at a time. But I'm going to tell you ahead of time, this is an encouragement sermon. At least that's the way I intend it. You know, there's different kinds of sermons. There's doctrinal sermons where you unfold a particular doctrine of the Christian faith, like predestination or the resurrection or something like that. There's sermons that are just evangelical where you're preaching the gospel to, to people. You're hoping that they'll be convicted of their sins and turn to Christ. Uh, there's all kinds of sermons. This, this is an encouragement sermon. That's how I mean it, to come out. So I hope you feel encouraged today, wherever you are, whether you're struggling with this or that. So let's draw some encouragement from the text. Let's work through it. So Bible's back open. Look at how this text begins. It really starts off. Um, in verse 46, but let's jump to verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's one of the simplest and most beautiful prayers in all of the scriptures. No doubt there are many prayers in the Bible. This is one of the most beautiful ones. You can memorize it. Just a few words. Sometimes the theologians call this the Kyrie Eleison, literally, Lord, have mercy. And this is not the only time in the Bible we see this prayer. Actually, it comes up a number of times, at least half a dozen times, this prayer, Lord, have mercy on me. It's variously worded, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's phrased a couple of different times. We see it on the lips, for instance, of two blind men, a different story from this blind man right here. In Mark 10, we see it 
off the lips of the Canaanite woman. Remember, her daughter is oppressed by demons. And what does she say to Jesus? The same words, Kyrie Eliezer, Lord, have mercy. And Jesus does. We see it in the story of the ten lepers that get healed from leprosy. Only one comes back to give him thanks, though. You remember that story from Luke? Kyrie Eliezer, Lord, have mercy. It's so simple, such a simple prayer to pray. And in fact, what's interesting about this prayer is it's been picked up and applied to various worship liturgies throughout the ages. The old Roman service for years and years used this as part of the worship service as a call and response between the pastor and the people. Martin Luther picked it up in 1526. He began to use it in his Lord's Supper liturgy as part of the preparation to receive the sacrament of the Lord's table. And then Calvin picked it up too, the Kyrie Eliezer. Calvin put it between the reading of the Ten Commandments. So you would read off one of the commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. And the people would reply, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, and so on. They would go through all of the commandments that way. And Thomas Cranmer put it in his worship liturgy for the Book of Common Prayer for the English church. And so none of this, however, is of knowledge to this particular blind man. He didn't really realize that his words were going to have such impact throughout the centuries in Christian worship services. For him, on this day, all he's doing is calling out for help. With those simple words, and you can memorize them, you can import them into your own prayer life, actually. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner, or any variation of that word order. He's just praying for help. That's all he's doing. It's just a plea. Now, we primarily work through paragraphs of the Bible one section at a time. We do a kind of preaching here called expository preaching where you just work through one unit, look at all the verses. One of the drawbacks of this method though, and I'll be the first one to admit this, is that sometimes when you're just doing a few verses at a time, what happens is you lose the forest for the trees, as they say. And I'm a little bit concerned that that might happen today just working through this one paragraph because, and here's the reason I say that, Bartimaeus, what he says in this paragraph is in stark contrast to what we've seen earlier in Mark chapter 10. And if you remember a couple of sermons ago, we looked at uh, the rich young man. Remember, he comes up to Jesus. He brags about his ability to fulfill the law. Jesus says, well, just, you know, fulfill the law. And he says, what does he say? You remember? All this I have done since my youth. Pretty arrogant. And then just last week, we looked at James and John, and remember Jesus challenged them, can you drink the cup that I drink? And what did they say? You remember the text? We are able. And so here, this passage is intentionally, I think, a stark contrast to the arrogance of these previous two encounters. And now we have a person who is truly humble, truly gracious, Truly worthy of our own imitation. If you want to imitate somebody, don't imitate James and John and their arrogance before Jesus. Don't imitate the rich young man and his boldness and audacity. Oh, I can fill the law. I've been doing that since I was a child. If you want to imitate somebody, imitate Bartimaeus here. His simple, gracious, lowly humility. Call it meekness if you want. But he simply cries out to Jesus, Lord, have mercy. And what happens to Bartimaeus when he says this? He's crying out for help. 
What do we see next? What happens next in the text? Well, we shouldn't be too surprised. Anytime anybody does anything noble in this world, it seems like somebody's going to resist that, right? And so here's what we read in verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, of course somebody would rebuke him. That's what always happens. Let me just tell you this. Um, you probably already know this. You can do anything in this world. You can say anything you want. Do something, do nothing, do this, do that, do the other thing, and there will always be somebody who is going to critique you for what you've done. Isn't that just the way it goes? If you want to say something, there's going to be somebody that doesn't like it. You want to say nothing? Again, you'll be opposed. You're going to do this thing. I guarantee somebody will rise up to tell you all of the reasons why you ought not to have done that thing. If you do the other thing, there will be a critic there as well. There's nowhere you can turn that somebody is not going to oppose you and resist you for what you think that you've done correctly. And so it's almost as though Bartimaeus can't win for trying, right? He can't win for losing here. And so at some points, at some point, you kind of have to decide in your life whether you're going to listen to the crowd or not. It says, many rebuked him there in verse 48. So a whole crowd of people. Here's Bartimaeus sitting by the side of the road. Jesus is walking along. Bartimaeus simply cries out for help. Whole crowd of people begin, shh. You, shh. Cut him off. So what are you going to do? Are you going to listen to the crowd for your whole life? Are you going to let the will of the people tell you what's right? Are you going to be hushed into silence? Because there's a crowd out there that says, don't talk. Be quiet. Close your mouth. Sit down. Or are you going to be more concerned with the rebuke of the one? The one meaning God, of course. You can't please everybody. You're not going to please everybody. Might as well live for the rebuke to avoid the, rebu the rebuke of the one. It's the only one that matters, really, right? I don't want to be pushed around by the crowd. I'm tired of that. I don't want to live my whole life Worried about who's going to tell me to shush, sit down, be quiet. I don't want to live that way. Do you? It's a terrible way to live, to be afraid of the crowd all the time. And so he doesn't. What does he do? Instead, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more. So the more they told him to shush, the more he cried out to Jesus. I kind of like his boldness here. I find that winsome myself, being willing to stand against the crowd. And then... This may be the most poignant moment of the encounter here and certainly the moment that I'm drawn to as I, as I preach this text to you this morning. Look at verse 49. Jesus stopped. The King James says he stood still. It's not too busy. Probably why they were telling him to be quiet and hush was that they assumed that Jesus was too busy to deal with a blind beggar, right? But Jesus is not too busy. He cares. He is compassionate. His eye is on the one who is suffering. Jesus is not going to walk past this man. Jesus is going to do something about it. The old King James says he stood still. In other words, as this crowd is moving on towards Jerusalem, Jesus stops, and I imagine all the crowd had to stop with him, right? And then, I find this interesting, they, it says, he said, Jesus said, call him, and they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, He's calling you. Now, 
One of my curiosities as I'm working through this text kind of at a micro level here is, who does the word they refer to in verse 49? Who was they that called the blind man? Isn't that interesting? Who do you think? What do you think? The crowd? The crowd would be a logical suggestion. In fact, grammatically, that might even be the most probable suggestion that they refers back to the very crowd that just mocked him one verse ago. But I'll tell you why I don't think it's they, the crowd. Even though grammatically, here's just a little technicality here. Normally when you have a pronoun in the Greek language and it's not specified who you're talking to, like they or he or him, normally what you do in Greek is you simply go back to the most recent proper noun, which in this case would be the crowd or the many that just rebuked him. That's how Greek normally works. I actually don't think it refers to the crowd here, though. I think it refers all the way back to verse 46 with the disciples. I think Jesus said, call him, and it was the disciples who went and actually spoke the words of verse 49 to this man. And I'll tell you why. Uh, The reason I'm inclined to take this interpretation, by the way, my interpretations are fallible. The word of God is infallible, but I could be wrong. Scripture's never wrong. But I think it's the disciples, and here's why. Because of the, the phrase, take hearts, which they say to the man. So there he is, sitting on the side of the road. Can you picture this? They, whoever they is, comes up and says, take heart. Now, I did a little research on this phrase. It's a Greek word, one word actually, tharsite, which means be encouraged. Be encouraged. And I, I looked it up, and I was curious about this word. Turns out it's only used eight times in the whole New Testament. Five times five times it's on the lips of Jesus. That's interesting. Two times it's on the lips of the Apostle Paul. So five times Jesus, two times Paul says this. That leaves us only one time here that we're not sure. That's our text. And so my thought, this is the reason I think is the disciples, because it seems like every time somebody says the word tharsite, be encouraged, take heart, it's a Christian. It seems to me like a very Christian thing to say. And so either they're saying to him, they're mocking him, right? Get up, get up. Take heart, get up, he's calling you. Either they're like annoyed and mocking him or it's the disciples encouraging him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. See the difference? So speaking a word of encouragement is a deeply Christian thing to do and all the more important today in our culture, even as even as there's so much infighting among Christians these days, right? So much infighting. You know this if you're on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, you're blissfully ignorant of this. But there is so much infighting and critique and mocking and scorn back and forth. Even among Christians, it gets disgusting. Did you know that you're actually allowed to encourage other people in the Lord? Did you know that? You can do that. You have permission to go and encourage people In the Lord. And so what do they say to him? Take heart, be encouraged, be strong, be of noble character. And then what? Here's my favorite words in the text today. Get up. Get up. Why? How? How do I get up when everything in my life is pulling me down on the ground? How do I get up when the inertia of the troubles and difficulties of my life is, as it were, pulling me back to the dust of the ground? How do I get up? Here's why. Here's how. Because he's calling you. Because he, Jesus, is calling you. Now, the word call in Christian understanding is a pretty rich word, to call. We use it a number of ways. 
Let's go through them real quick. What does it mean when we Christians speak about somebody being called? Well, first of all, there's the general call of the gospel. Okay, when we preach the gospel and we say, repent or perish, come to Jesus and be saved, that is the general call of the gospel, right? You can believe it or you can reject it. But you're called, broadly speaking, to Christ and the gospel. Secondly, we speak of call as the internal call of conversion or the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's called the effectual call of the Spirit of God. And so the work that God does, he speaks inwardly to the heart. He illuminates our minds and turns us so that we can repent and we can believe and we can be enabled to do those things. And then it gets narrower and we can speak of being called how? Called into service or ministry. And that's not just an ordained thing, by the way. People can be called, every Christian can be called to do something for the good of the church or your family or your community. Right now, uh, we have a spot open in the nursery department. I'm kind of hoping that God's going to call one of you to take up that spot. And so there's that. And then there's the ordained call, which is an even more narrow and focused type of call. right? But here's the point. Every time we talk about call in Christian theology, it's call to what? To somebody. To him. All of those calls are calls where? To Jesus. And so the reason, Bartimaeus, that you can get up is because Jesus is calling you. And then look at this, verse 50. This gets exciting here. Throwing off his cloak. He's got a cloak. He throws it off. No hindrances. Nothing weighing me down. It says in the text, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. I love the fact that he springs up onto his feet. He doesn't just barely drag, him up, drag himself up. He springs up. Do, do a favor for me real quick. Let's turn to the book of Acts chapter 3. I want to show you another text that's kind of similar to this. Look at Acts chapter 3. You brought your Bibles, right? You're Presbyterian. Of course you brought your Bible. That's what we do here. Acts chapter 3, there's a, there's a similar but different healing. This time it's Peter and John, and this time we're talking about a crippled man rather than a blind man. But Acts chapter 3, verse 4 says, Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There it is again. Get up. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And look at this, verse 8. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So get up, Christians. Spring up on your feet. And here's the encouragement part of the sermon. I told you this was an encouragement sermon, right? Some of us, maybe even here in the room right now, have spent way too much time worrying about what everybody else thinks about you. You've spent so much of your life and your mental energy and your emotional energy worried about how many people are going to rebuke you if you do something. Throw off that cloak and spring up. No more let the crowd 
direct your attention or your focus. There's always going to be somebody that told you that you're not good enough. There's always going to be somebody that told you that you're not qualified or that you shouldn't do it that way or it's never been done that way before or this way is wrong and this way is right. How long are you going to go around listening to the critics? Some of us have probably spent way too much time in our lives making excuses for ourselves. I'm tired. I'm wounded. I'm hurt. I'm weary. I get it. Trust me, I felt that way many times myself. Get up. Some of us have spent a whole lot of time thinking that somebody else is going to get the call instead of us because they're better, they're smarter, they're more beautiful, they're stronger, they're younger, they're older. Get up. Everything in your life at some point is going to tell you to stay down on the ground. And here are the disciples telling this man, take heart, get up, he's calling you. I'm not going to imagine somebody listening to this message and saying, well, this kind of seems like a motivational talk. Is that all this is? A little motivational speech today? No. Here's the difference between the gospel and motivational speaking, right? Really, just the difference between the two categories summed up in one line. In a motivational talk, maybe you've been to one at a corporate meeting or some training seminar or something like that, they're really annoying actually because every motivational speech is exactly the same. What they do is they tell you, if you want to be strong, you have to look where for your strength. What do they tell you? Look inside. That's right. Look in you. You're already strong enough. You just have to find yourself. You have to dig in deep. Find the real you. Discover the real you. Hey, Bartimaeus, you could probably see better if you just look inside and see the seen man instead of looking at the blind man. That kind of stuff, right? Total nonsense. Because as we all know, we are really actually quite weak. As we all know, if we're really honest with ourselves, we are blind and we are beggars. And so as it turns out, look into yourself, find the strength within you, isn't really very good advice. And so what happens is you end up spending your whole life laying by the side of the road. And so the difference between motivational speaking and the Christian gospel is that in the Christian gospel, instead of looking inside of ourselves to find strength, we look where? To him. That's why we can get up. That's why we can keep going. That's why we can follow after him because there is one who calls us to himself and he actually gives us the power to do it, you see. He actually enables us to do the very thing that he's calling us to do, which is to follow after him. And so that's the difference right there. We don't look inside. That's death. We look to him. And so here's how the story finishes up. Let's let's go ahead to to verse 51 and 52. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Good question, by the way. Remember, the man has two problems. He's blind and he's a beggar. So his answer here could say a lot about his character. If he says, well, I want everything. I want to see and I want riches. Then we would know a little bit about him. And, And if he said that, he would have been a little bit more in the category of James and John and the rich young man who wanted to have their cake and eat it too, right? But instead, in keeping with Bartimaeus' gentle and meek character, he simply says, Rabbi, a term of affection and honor and endearment, 
Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, this text right here has been used and abused by the, the, uh, the healing televangelists, right? Because what do they say? Well, they'll preach healing, and then if, if you're not healed, what do they say to you? Well, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. See? See what Jesus says to Bartimaeus? It's not my fault. I'm the healing televangelist. It's your fault. You didn't have the faith. And so actually this passage, which is quite an encouragement, has been used to actually tamper people down again. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He didn't say, your faith has made you see. He said, your faith has made you well. And then Jesus grants the miracle. See the difference? Faith in Christian theology is what justifies us as sinners before the righteousness of the great and living God. Don't forget your doctrine. This is an encouragement sermon, but don't forget your doctrine. We are justified by faith, said the Protestant reformers, right? And what does that mean? It means that we who are sinners, we who have broken God's law, we who have failed him in any number of ways in our lives, we who have red check marks all over the paper that we turned in of our lives, right? We are the recipients of God's merciful, forgiving, clearing grace. And he regards us in his sight as righteous, even though we're sinners. He wipes away our sins and he makes us his children, draws us into his family, and regards us as loved ones. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Not well off or wealthy. Your faith has made you well. Well how? Well with the living God in relationship to him through faith in Christ. Your faith, Christian, is the most important thing about you. Listen, if you tuned out, this is really important. Your faith is the most important thing about you. It is not your skin color. It is not your, your class of wealth. It is not your voting demographic. It is not your occupation. It's not your marital status. It's not what neighborhood you live in. The most important thing about you, Christian, is your faith in Jesus Christ. Your faith has made you well by bringing you into relationship with the great and living God. Therefore, throw off the rebuke of the crowd and follow him. See? If Christ is the anchor and you are the ship being bantied about by the storm, your faith is that chain that holds you to Christ. Your faith is the chain that holds the ship and the storm and the seas of life to the anchor that is Jesus Christ. Your faith is that which binds us together as the believing community of God. Therefore, your faith has made you well as the single most important thing about you, Christian. To be completely honest with you, you will be rebuked and critiqued in this world. It is possible that you may get fired. It is possible that you may lose your wealth. It is possible that you may lose your status It is possible that the things that you've worked so hard for your whole life can be taken from you one day. But the one thing that can never be taken from you, Christian, is what? Your faith. So take heart. Get up. He's calling you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that our faith in Christ has made us well. We thank you, O God, that our faith is a chain that cannot be broken bent or severed that moors us to the gospel in Jesus Christ. 
We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's stand, church, for the benediction as we go. By the way, don't forget, today we're starting Sunday school at 940, so if you're interested in that, our classes are available for all ages. Receive now the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his grace and his peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.